Welcome to Empowering XX, a podcast about strong women across different disciplines and how they're making a difference. Hello, and welcome to episode two of Empowering XX. In today's episode, we sit down with Andrea, a health equity advocate working in a preventative healthcare clinic in Toronto. In her pursuit of a career in global health, Andrea certainly picked up a passion for empowering marginalized communities and addressing health inequities through policy change and implementation, which will definitely shine through in this interview. Andrea describes herself as a creative and innovative jack-of-all-trades, as you'll quickly pick up from our conversation about being a desk jockey, changing university majors 461 times approximately, volunteering for Fetch and Relish, working for a photo booth at events, the blasphemy of being a morning person minus the routine, and her preferred coffee machine synonym. Please welcome the calming voice of Andrea Figueroa, health equity advocate. Good morning and welcome to the pod. <laughs> How are you this fine? Arise and shine. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. I love that. <laughs> Kylie Jenner is going to come after me with a lawsuit. Oh, yeah. It is I mean, trademarked. She, she, she trademarked it, but yeah. you know what? Maybe we can't. Auto tune it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Auto tune it <laughs> to the beginning of this book. So, Rise and shine. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, good morning. Welcome to the pod. Thank you for doing this yet again because I am tech challenged and don't know how to save a Zoom recording, apparently, from what I learned from this experience. (laughs) Our worst nightmare. We're starting off strong. Episode two. (laughs) Do you want to start off by telling us exactly what your job entails? So I know you're a health equity advocate. So you mentioned you have, you know, a day job and then other things that tie into that role as well. So take it away. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm honored that little little me is, you know, going to be on the internet as a as a guest on a podcast. <laughs> um, like a thousand followers or more on on Insta, by the way. So you know, not so I do little. I do what I can. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I do have what I call my eight to four, and in that role, I'm a in a medical office um, for a, I'm not going to say the company name, <laughs> but it's a national uh, healthcare company. Uh, they have clinics across the country and they focus on preventative care and they offer these annual assessments that patients come in. They spend four to five hours in the clinic, get a bunch of testing done. And it's a great way. And we've had many patients tell us that it's saved lives. It's found problems that they had no idea had gotten so bad or, um, help them avoid things, caught things early on, pre-diabetes, heart conditions, etc. And I work in the medical office side. So I liaise with the patients before their assessment and after and just make sure their experience is seamless. They have follow-ups. If they have any questions, any concerns, they want to speak to their doctor, they need to book a follow-up. Sometimes I reach out to clinics, specialists, and just follow up on things for them. And my my role, I would say, is kind of the jack of all trades role within the company, within the clinic, I would say. And then that kind of also is what I am in in, in my daily, day-to-day life. I find I have an eight to four, but I do so many other things outside of that that I wouldn't just summarize myself as an administrative assistant or um, a, what is it, administrative associate or coordinator. It's a lot more 
like the title is really a health equity advocate because even though I have this job title, I think I do a lot of things outside of that that speak to, I guess, a greater greater role or presence or whatever you want to call it. So yeah, that's my day-to-day is just communicating sometimes over the phone. Our company launched an app recently, so we've been troubleshooting with that a lot. I feel like a bit of like an IT department and a communications hub and a help desk all in one. <laughs> but it's a very dynamic role and that's what I like about it is that I never face the same thing twice. Like so there's certain responses that are the same, but I'm always dealing with completely different problems and that's what keeps me on my toes. What did what did you say you were called a just a desk jockey? <laughs> that was uh, a term that I actually saw a patient use in their uh, what describe your your data your like role and it said desk jockey and I had to look it up and it was an office worker somebody who sits at a desk. <laughs> no, period. Just sits at period. a desk. Just that's your desk, job. Rides the desk. Like that's their day to day. And I was like, honestly, you might think that's what I do, but mentally, there's a lot going on. Mentally, I'm not sitting down. No, mentally, <laughs> mentally, I am I'm running around. Down. Yeah, no, there's a lot happening in my in this little brain. <laughs> not so little. Okay, and what other things outside of your job do you think tie into it, like? other interests that you have or other commitments that you have that would tie into into your role yeah your so, eight to four role. <laughs> uh, so in my undergrad i went to u of t i ma- majored in health studies and international development so i have um and I, I realized from a young age i always wanted to help people i always saw myself in some kind of role or job that helped others and when i was little it was oh maybe i should be a vet or a marine biologist as like every millennial child for some reason wanted to be a marine biologist um and as i got older i thought maybe i want to be a doctor um i never really considered philanthropic work like volunteer work a career path because although i'd done it all my life because my parents they were really big influence on me in volunteering and giving back to the community I never really understood if you could have a career in that. But as I got older, I realized, you know, I do a lot of volunteer work, marketing and fundraising for NGOs throughout university, um, even in high school. And in my, after I graduated, I even, I was a grant writer for an NGO working in, in Africa, actually. It was in, in Ghana. And it was through a, a peer of mine from my undergrad who'd done a co-op there and pretty much met somebody. They started an NGO. And I thought, you know what? I love to write. I do freelance write as well on the side. It's something else that I do because I love to research. I love to learn and I love to share knowledge. And I always find myself editing people's papers in undergrad and stuff. And so it really translated well into grant writing because I'm trying to express the mission of an NGO to get them funding, for example. So that was something that I really enjoyed doing was working with nonprofits. I think as much as capitalism exists that is our society people need to make money people need to get paid for their work there's a lot of work and a lot of effort that is done for for just for the good of it and that's why it was unpaid but i didn't really care because it was a good experience i learned a lot so grant writing is something that i do and it has opened up a whole world of like there's a career in philanthropic work in volunteer work in nonprofit organizations for anybody who thinks that they they don't have an option there it definitely is i also i guess in that same thread of volunteer work i 
foster dogs <laughs> for also a, I guess it's a private, I don't know the start, but it's a rescue in Toronto called Fetch and Relief. So I'm definitely going to drop that name here because anybody who maybe isn't, doesn't have the means right now to own their own dog, maybe has the space, has the love, but doesn't never doesn't have any experience would like to gain that there is the option to foster where the organization provides you everything you need and you just got to give love and structure to this little pup and Which is what everyone in the pandemic should have done instead of getting their own pets <laughs> i agree <laughs> but yeah so it's like another thing again i helping out an animal i'm not a vet i'm not a vet tech i did dedicate my life to it but it's something that i do as well to help connect animals to people who could potentially own one like it's kind of like a gateway <laughs> not a gateway drug but <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's what I, that's what everyone would have thought of right a gateway into into dog ownership <laughs> so i definitely recommend fostering if you volunteered for you know humane society something like that but you want to move beyond that maybe have a a kind of like a protected experience of having a pet without mm -hmm. the risk in a sense <laughs> but having more support so yeah i foster grant writing freelance writing i guess i can also mention working for a photo booth company in the city <laughs> company i will say it here because they're great is event circle <laughs> and it, it's just my i guess extra income but also i love talking to people and socializing and you get to see different venues around the city and it's just something that's totally different from what i do in my in my desk job mm -hmm. like at work and it's like going to a, you have to go to a party and you get paid to go to a party is <laughs> pretty much what that job is which doesn't necessarily tie into healthcare doesn't necessarily tie into my nine to five but it's something that gives me balance in my life which i think everybody can use and great pictures exactly yeah i actually i've taken my linkedin headshot at work because <laughs> nobody was using the booth and i thought i look great it's a black and white theme. I'm just gonna, just gonna pose for a second, <laughs> cropped it. <laughs> and if you see Why my not? LinkedIn, if you see my LinkedIn, that headshot is from one of our cameras. <laughs> nice. I'd say <laughs> I do so many different things and I find it just keeps me connected to people and the community and giving back. And I think part of that is what equity is all about is um, being involved in different levels and different parts of communities and fields and knowing what people need, especially when it comes to healthcare, just being exposed to different, I don't know, different aspects of society and seeing like, what are the needs? How can I, does my, you know, if, is what I'm doing possibly going to give back one day? Like who I am has always been so multifaceted and I always hated the idea that I had to pick one career, one path for my whole life, and that was going to be it. And I would just be an accountant forever. And I would live and die as an accountant. Not that I hate accountants. They're so necessary. But for myself, to think that I had to go through my whole life doing one thing was terrifying. And I think what I've done now is kind of curated this life where I'm connected to different communities and different parts of society in such different ways but that all inform me and keep me keep my i guess like perspective like open and informed in different ways and that's what health equity is really about is seeing things as they are and where 
you can improve things so that everybody has that equal access, equal opportunity, especially in healthcare, especially preventative care is something that is so important, so overlooked right now in the healthcare system, which is why I I really chose this path was because I found so much more value in working in policy where you can influence the system versus just working within the system as it is. Uh, which is very abstract, I, I think, of a concept for a lot of people. They think like, oh, if I want to yeah. help somebody, I just need to be a healthcare be a doctor. Be, yeah, yeah, be a doctor, be nurse. a nurse. But I'm like, and even then, there are roles that are systemic and, and strategic within those fields. But I found for myself, you know, if I was a doctor, I'd be working all the time in, in medicine and I wouldn't necessarily have as much time in my career to focus on policy work and See if I can get involved one day, whether it's on a municipal level or non-governmental, right? So working with people, not just as a doctor, but I can also imagine with yourself, like knowing the information you know about the patients, you can see how like sometimes you might, you know, be thinking about them or being like, oh, I feel bad for this person or this is so sad and or maybe even the opposite, like, oh, this is so nice. Like whenever I deal with people as well, like it, it's yeah, a lot of emotional connection as opposed mm-hmm. to your typical, like, I don't want to, I don't want this to be a, <laughs> to be a hate towards accountants, but <laughs> see, like, yeah, you have to work with people, but not in the same way. Right. So I think, yeah, it is emotionally draining at times, especially if you're like constantly at the, you know, clinic or at the hospital. Uh, not just doctors like nurses obviously as well they see mm-hmm. they probably see worse things of course. Um, because they're there most of the time in front of the patient but yeah so i think what you said like to tie it back to to working in policy a lot of people think well not just like healthcare policy but policy in general it's so like abstract it sounds like oh very you know or, is that just law like are you just gonna work in law yeah, anyone who is doing political science or international relations at university did they i don't know even know if they knew what that meant because and i think we could probably tie this in with your your experience going through like your education so through high school and and into university how did you kind of figure out that policy was something that you wanted to do there must have been that aha moment for you or were you're like, okay, this is actually what I want to do. It's not just, it sounds cool, but I think I could do this, but then it doesn't end up being the right decision. So yeah, bottom line, <laughs> how did you get into this career path, essentially? Twas a long and winding road. <laughs> I will preface it with that. I had to change universities once. I think I changed majors four times before I realized and even knew that policy was an option. Out of out of high school, a mess. I was an undecided major. I was also dealing with a lot of mental health um, difficulties at the time as well, which made it even harder to try and find a path and be passionate or interested in something. And throughout university, I would do I would I took courses and I tried to find okay, what am I actually interested in? And I was having the hardest time tying my studies and these thousands of dollars going into learning into something that I could apply in the real world, which I think a lot of university students go through that struggle is, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm writing this essay in 10 years, does it mean anything? Those are the existential conversations I had with myself at the age of like 19, 20. (laughs) 
And I remember being at U of T, having changed schools, having changed programs a few times. And I learned that I could work, I could study in international development and health policy, which I found tied together really well because I was very interested in volunteer work and how with philanthropy, a lot of the times in North America, all these missions, all these projects take place abroad. And we have this role as these Westerners in these other countries, you know, thinking that we know best, that we are, our systems and our ideas are better than what's out there. And I was really interested in looking at development, looking at health through that international lens, because I know in Canada, you know, we always say, oh, we have free healthcare. A lot of people put Canada on a pedestal, but realistically, there's much better systems out there that exist. And I think as a future policymaker, I want to be as well informed as I could by other countries and by other systems. And so discovering that that existed, I was like, I think I just sat there like in a daze, like, oh my God, I found my program. Like, this is what I'm going to do. I get to read about things I care about, like buying the textbooks. I'm never selling them. Like, I'm never like university spend like $200 on like a textbook. You're like, oh, this hurt me so much. Oh I need to sell this $200 anatomy textbook one day to, <laughs> to pay for this degree. <laughs> but when I got my global health textbooks and I got to talk to my professors and look at the research they were doing and it was critical development too. So we we're looking at work that was being done, even, even by universities themselves, the things that they um, financially support. And I was like, oh my God, the world is so corrupt. <laughs> I knew it I knew it already, but holy, you know, like mining companies and their research being backed by universities, you know, institutions play a huge role in development and in international development. And the banana we're eating for breakfast could have come from a plantation in a global South country where this company from North America may have gone in, purchased the land, has a, you know, agreement with the government and is maybe destroying the ecosystem for this plantation. <laughs> like that is what development really is. And that's probably why I maybe seem a little bit cryptic sometimes <laughs> when it comes to discussing development maybe a little bit negative. I try to just be as realistic as I can, but yeah. you know, that degree really showed me a lot about the world and with health policy, we learned, we studied so many systems abroad that I thought, wow, there's so much we can learn. Why aren't we collaborating more internationally? So a hundred percent, there was an aha moment that just like married everything about myself and what I wanted to do into a little ball, into a diploma. <laughs> <laughs> I want to point out that Andrea is making all of these cute little hand gestures. <laughs> I wish you could see it. Can't talk without gesturing. I don't know where it comes from, but I mean, I'm a very like kin kinesthetic express expressor. I don't know. <laughs> Even when I, when I did presentations, I can't stand still. I need to walk around. I need to do like the teacher walk up and down the aisle. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> like a podium. Yeah, or even like on the phone sometimes and like pacing yeah yeah oh my god all through when i was younger on the phone with my friend after school and we just spent the whole day together in like the sixth grade pacing around my house pacing for like an hour just to just to follow up on that actually it's an interesting point that you brought up do you think like from what you studied and and as you continue to grow and, and study um 
like global health or just policy in general. Do you think there's a reluctance or maybe not intentional of like North American countries or first world countries, air quotes, that they don't want to collaborate with third world countries or developing countries in terms of making policy or learning from them? Is there a reluctance or maybe they're not doing as much to work with these countries? It's definitely ties into colonialism. And I think that's something that I needed to mention within this podcast. If I'm talking about advocacy, if I'm talking about equity and healthcare and development, colonialism has a huge part in that because it's influenced so many international relationships. So much of the the work that can be done is so limited by what countries have agreements with who. What is the government doing publicly and privately? You know, a lot of that ties into what's being done now, even when it comes to volunteering. Uh, one of the things that I learned and questioned actually was why does volunteering exist? And is there a way, it, will we one day see the end of volunteering? Because if you think about it, these mission trips to like, you know, African nations or to South America to build toilets and give people a plumbing system, you know, volunteering comes from a lack of the government and the country being able to provide for its people, its people stepping up for themselves. And sometimes, you know, I wonder, will we one day see nations that are self-sufficient? Can volunteering pivot so that instead of people coming in and doing something and leaving, maybe we come in and, you know, not just coming in uninvited, but collaborate with the community to, you know, help them help themselves. So I think a lot of volunteer work comes from a good place and wanting to do good but focuses too much on what one per one party knows versus the other and that sort of power dynamic again yeah. that comes from colonialism because there's a phrase we learned in my program called the west knows best <laughs> where people in the west think they know the most and they have the best systems and understanding but a lot of the times systems from you know global north, western nations, etc. They keep knowledge because of this notion that less developed nations have less developed knowledge. When in reality, there's, you know, healthcare solutions and medicine, medicinal practices and what wellness practices that have existed for thousands of years using natural, you know, the environment versus synthetics and and so much like there's so much to learn and and slowly it's i'm seeing you know there's promise is what i can say things are not completely dire there's a lot more research happening now that involves actually like a recipe like a like reciprocity and sort of working together versus just informing there's yeah. like, it's, there's more conversation happening when it comes to research now i find researchers especially in development just hate the notion that researchers come in and observe and don't actually interact with, with what they're researching and just look at it from their little perspective coming from wherever north america so yeah i find like there's definitely like it's a very it's a very heavy question i guess like development and and a lot of what happens with volunteering and that aspect is very informed by history but it's not to say there's no point in trying to change things if we didn't try nothing would change so yeah for sure like i think yeah you made a really good point in terms of 
bringing up like the whole notion of the West knows best. I think when we're, we were in school, like if I were in you know history or geography class, we always had these caricatures where the West was depicted as like the big, strong, you know, tough guy in like the, the full like three piece suit or whatever. And then all the developing countries like were poor, fragile beings crying for help just to tell us that we're called first world countries or developed countries but it's not necessarily black and white i think yeah given the history and like colonialism there's always like we always tiptoe around that topic like oh can we actually go to african countries and have a discussion with them about what they're doing what's working for them. Is there a point? Because it doesn't seem like anything's working over there, right? Like that's, I think that's how these conversations end up going. And it's more of a, okay, like let's go and help them. Did they ask for help? Maybe not. We can see that you're suffering. Let me just go over there and help you in a way that I think works best. Right. So yeah. Yeah. And that's, sort of why when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to even just in Canada itself, um, I still see a lot of, you know, I guess involvement from the government or red tape, or there's a lot of, like, you can get funding, but you have to do meet X, Y, and Z criteria, or you have to show mm-hmm. us this data or this information. And granted, there's a lot like, the the volunteering and just that that part of Toronto is amazing. There's so many organizations that are you know grassroots focused, community focused. Um, they focus on what the people need versus telling them what they need or rolling out programs that aren't necessarily going to work. But it's hard because sometimes those programs are the most underfunded because the government doesn't necessarily see you know a need or a benefit immediately which is why there's so much focus on primary care in this country and not preventative care because primary care is very easy to measure, very easy to see, easy to get statistics on. It's very hard to measure preventative care, which takes place before somebody even gets really sick or needs to come into a hospital or a clinic. (laughs) Yeah. It's like telling someone who broke their leg, oh, you broke your leg. You need care. It's like, okay, (laughs) thank you. Like can we have prevented Once I've gotten to that point, how can I, or like, yeah, you've developed this disease. Okay, but how did I develop this disease? Where does it come from? A lot of people are getting like, you know, kidney stones or whatever, depending on where they live. Is it the water? Is it like, there are a lot of factors that go into that. So to put less stress on our healthcare system, it does make sense to invest more in preventative healthcare. But yeah, there are a lot of barriers to that as well. Like a lot of people, depending on the community, some people don't like going to the doctor it's even if there's a concern they'll be like okay like they'll drag their feet to make that appointment and it has to be like urgent like okay i need to see a doctor now mm-hmm. but pe- some people don't have that you know and myself included i as a student i can't go to the doctor every single time to get like help with this or that because it takes a lot of time to get referrals and even just to like find like for for a tune-up or whatever it's a lot of wait time. And so people see it as that. It's an extra step that I have to do. And what if there's nothing, you know, I'm fine. So Mm -hmm. I don't think it's given enough credit or yeah, there's a lot of potential there for preventative work, but 
Mm. It's not part of our routine yet. (laughs) It's not really wired in, I think, to the healthcare system as much as it could be. It's there, you know, we have a public health department, just public health and preventative care kind of are hand in hand because Mm -hmm. if the public is healthy, then, you know, the public system is, you know, it's doing well, you don't need as much, you know, I guess there's no, no, not as much need for primary care, (laughs) but primary care is lucrative. I will not get further into that because yeah. the whole other topic and people might think I'm a conspiracy theorist, but I'm, you know, <laughs> well, it makes sense because preventative care might not be like, it's like, Oh, let's keep an eye on this. Whereas primary care, it's like, Oh, I'm going to prescribe you. Like you have this condition. I'm going to prescribe you this. So there's prescriptions involved, drugs being given out, whether or not you have OHIP plus that kind of stuff. So I see why, like, and again, people, go to the doctor with the objective in mind, like, I'm going to go get an antibiotic for this, or I'm going to go and check this out because I know I need medication. There's something funky growing on my skin. I need (laughs) an ointment. There is a goal in mind, whereas preventative care, again, yeah, the time factor, having to jump through certain hoops. I don't know how accessible it actually is. Genuinely, I don't even know if I were to go and be like, oh, I want to see a preventative, I want to go to a preventative healthcare clinic. What do I expect? Mm-hmm. And I suppose in the primary healthcare system, we do have like, oh, you should go to your doctor and get an annual checkup. Mm-hmm. How many people even have a family doctor or even think to do that? And why, you know, I think a lot of what isn't being done right now is educating people to to know what to look for and what, you know, what to do. Like, and it, go, it even comes down to city planning. Like even city planning is part of preventative care in a very indirect way because if you think about it you know for students going to the doctor for people who are working going to the doctor people who are single moms or single parents and need somebody to watch after their kids or whatever it is do they have the time and the means to get to to a doctor's office in the first place you know so that all ties into preventative care and i'm really interested in that and i would like to make it better for people and make it more accessible and remove more barriers (laughs) that's like the goal of my life (laughs) Yeah. And so do you see a lot of people again, like who go to the, um, to, to your clinic, do you see a lot of people who maybe have a history of like, let's say like colon cancer or something. And they're just like trying to get some screening or like that they, they were told by their primary care physician that there might be a risk of this. You should get it checked. Is that the main clientele or, you know, source of patients that you get? Yeah, so I'd say for the most part right now, because there's not as much support for this type of clinic, I guess through the public system, majority of our clients are like employees for companies, like they're kind of given this benefit by their employer. And so, and it's interesting, because even though they only come once a year, they almost like care more about what their results are for this exam or this testing than whatever they do with their family doctor. And it's in, it's very interesting. I haven't really looked into that too much, like that relationship there. But um, for the most part, you know, they kind of come up, come to this assessment. If it's their first time, they don't really know what to expect. Just they're getting their blood drawn. They're getting an ECG. They're seeing the doctor for an exam to chat, to see if they need referrals for anything. And then it turns out a lot of the time people are like, you know what? I didn't consider this before, or I didn't get this much attention from my like primary care doctor, or I don't have one. So this is the best information I'm going to get on my healthcare as it is right now. And then they continue coming. Like there's clients who've been coming to the clinic for 20 years, you know, so a referral or 
Uh, no, it is. Um, it's not public. It's not um, covered by OHIP. There's it's part of the testing that is like in the blood panel. But yeah, this is like a paid benefit. It's like regulated and everything. Since it's like a once a year kind of assessment. Yeah. That's probably why. Like, I, again, I wouldn't, because I'm a student, I wouldn't think to, I don't have a family doctor, let alone be concerned with preventative care because it's so, it seems so vague to everyone, even though if you think about it, it seems very logical to to go and get that checkup once a year and mm-hmm. yeah, make sure everything is functioning properly, especially as you start to get older. But because it's interesting that you mentioned that a lot of people with benefits do that. I think a lot of massage therapy or, you know, those benefit things that are covered by benefits, all of these run based off of people's benefits. If we didn't have them, would we actually, I mean, unless we were well off, like financially, like if we didn't have them, would we go? And a lot of people, especially like students too, they don't think maybe we have a lot of benefits that we're not aware of because it's not like, I mean, to a certain extent, they encourage us to to take a look at these big pamphlets, but it's not accessible. There's that barrier, like oh, I have to go and read something to find out whether or not I qualify. And mm-hmm. like you said, like there's so many hoops to jump through to be able to access a basic service, a basic need. Everyone should be able to to go, but unfortunately that's not the case and so we all rely on primary care and it's a burden on the health the like healthcare system overall yeah and that's what i i noticed in my part-time job before i got this one during my undergrad i worked at a clinic and it was a private care clinic because it was all like massage therapy naturopath osteopath uh chiropractor chiropractic care and those are all things that aren't covered by OHIP. They're all covered by benefits or it's out of pocket. Some things are covered if you're in a motor vehicle accident, mm-hmm. but again, you have to be injured in a motor vehicle accident to qualify for yeah. covered care and it's still through a provider. So again, like there's just so much, those are, those are all therapies and ways to prevent illness and, you know, malaise. I don't know how to word it, but it's, those are all things that I think so many people could benefit from and would help with like pain management and injury prevention. And just, you have to have the money for it. And it's so unfortunate. I think so many more people could benefit from it. And there's so many clinics that, you know, I've had the pleasure of working for going to clinics that offer discounted rates for people who don't have coverage, um, which does make it a little more accessible. It's just unfortunate that again, for all of these things, you need to have either insurance plan or you have to have the money for it yeah and I, I don't even know where the solution like what the solution to that would be um if it were all just like public publicly funded i don't know it's it's a lot more complicated than that yeah yeah so it's not just like black and white i think there's a lot of like gray area and i think a lot of research needs to be done cities like toronto are being becoming so dense and it's hard like from just a transport system healthcare system everything is isn't you know scaling the way it should to match that boom in population we have now you've now stepped into the world of health policy and development and all of that (laughs) this is what i this is what goes on in my brain all day long (laughs) yeah it's like, oh, damn, this person could have been helped 
if, you know, if there was, if they had benefits or if they came sooner, if, yeah, a lot of patients haven't been accessing, like for, to start off with, not a lot of people regularly go to, to doctors for checkups or to, to clinics for checkups. And so with the pandemic, a lot of people have not been screened for cancers and, you know, big, big diseases like that, yeah. which has caused a lot of now um, backlog in the system. And yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's really sad, but yeah, it's people like you who are going to make a difference and yeah, advocating for these populations or certain communities that may be at a disadvantage people who don't have benefits. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's the I thing, right? Is like health thing. policy, health, like just working in this field, it is like, we're fighting a very difficult fight. It's a very uphill battle. Like it is such a, um, just this gigantic problem. It's almost like there's so many things to fix. You don't know where to start, but it, and it's not glamorous and it takes time and it's not a fast career, you know, you're not going to become the number one health policy maker in the world, you know, it doesn't kind of have that growth strategy, but it takes a very perseverant group of people for it. So I'm doing what I can. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, it's not, it's slow moving. That's why there's that whole stereotype, like people who work in government or, you know, in policy aren't doing anything. It's just, it's hard when there are that many people who are involved in making a decision. And then you have, you know, someone like our premier who comes in and is like, you know what, if you have coverage from like school or from your parents, you can't get OHIP plus. You have to, you know, you go through that first. But that hurts a lot of people. Sure, like for someone who has the odd prescription or something that costs like 10 bucks, right? That's not a big deal. Sure, it makes sense. But then what about someone with diabetes who has like an insulin pump and the costs are, you know, there's a certain ceiling to the private insurances or the insurance that we got through school. You're going to surpass that with the, with the demands, like someone who has a chronic illness, how are they going to get support? How are they going to get their match their needs if you know, you have that ceiling effect, they're going to have to start paying out of pocket at a certain point, And then you have to apply for like Trillium and there it's not easy. So I feel like when these decisions are being made, there's still, it's some communities or some certain demographics are being overlooked. And again, then you have to review that whole decision and write more letters and get people organized. Angry people have to come together and get organized to to try to change that and that's that's why like i don't know i and i don't know how these decisions get made like a lot of these policymakers work so hard long and hard um to do research and to to write grants and look at things you know in, in detail before they make a decision you know you have to study it first right like this is you know you did a whole degree on that and then you know someone just walks in and is like oh doesn't make sense get rid of it yeah, I'd say the most frustrating thing about policy is that it is slow moving and we get a bad rap <laughs> by political leaders who are kind of like the headpiece of policy and decision making in any country, really. And in a democracy, things just take longer because you got it's, you know, the people got to decide too. they got to mm -hmm. put their input. <laughs> Not that I would want 
a non non uh democratic country <laughs> but yeah careful now okay and i guess that would tie in like i know we touched on this a little bit but what would be the biggest assumption about your job like when you tell people i mean we talked about like being a desk jockey right you're like oh i have an eight to four i go to the clinic i answer phone calls emails but i also write like i work in policy as well i like to write grants what what is what are the assumptions behind that i mean if i just talk about my eight to four they like oh are, they, are you a nurse are you a doctor like what are you doing prep what is first of all they don't usually know what preventative care is <laughs> like that's the hardest one to answer because it's like <laughs> a whole theme a whole topic in its own is just explaining what preventative care is but yeah usually they just assume like and once i say oh like i'm more on the admin side they're like oh okay like so you just like book appointments and answer phones and i'm like i wish it was just that sometimes <laughs> some days i wish that's all i did but yeah no it's usually the assumption is uh just administrative work for a clinic they assume i don't know i pull charts and things like that but for the most part people are usually intrigued by what preventative care is in the first place and then it can kind of tie my role into that mm. so i kind of you know make the make the corrections early on to what they perceive i do but all through university nobody none of my friends like what are you doing again what's your degree again like what is that <laughs> it's like as if they've been it with um hr i also i think hr is actually like from my friends that i've talked to about it i think it's it's pretty interesting there's a whole like psychology behind it too and you can go into different careers with hr but i think they just bin it in that you know kind of oh the desk job thing there's a whole hidden department somewhere in, a, in an office building where you guys reside. <laughs> that's that's pretty much it. I had a bit of a yawn just now. No, I haven't that's... had coffee yet. Oh, really? No. I was like up and at them to like get ready for this and like make sure my notes were in order. <laughs> I had water. <laughs> yeah. And no, I had to the coffee some days. Some days I can get away with just like going about my day and then picking up a coffee. I mean, I, I think it's actually better to wait at least like 30 minutes to an hour after you wake up, which is what I did today as well. But mm. it's just like, nope, inject me with it right now. Put the water through the yum yum machine. The yum yum machine. <laughs> yeah, I am drinking water. It's just going through the yum yum machine first. <laughs> yeah, literally, that's what I, I joke about to my mom. She said, do you want water? And I was like, put it through the yum yum machine first. She's like, which one, the espresso one or the coffee one? And I'm like, ooh, the most titillating question all morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes with the type of coffee, like some days I'll have an espresso. Some days I'm like, no, I need something that's larger, more volume to it. Mm -hmm. More body. Yeah, I guess. Oh, we can talk about my uh, my morning routine. Yeah, that's gonna say tying into the how we um, get to the yum yum machine. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, speaking of which, so what does what does a morning look like for you? I know you work an eight to four, so that would mean also you commute, so that would mean you would have to be up pretty early. What did you you were talking about being a morning person too? So let's start with that. Yeah, <laughs> like I like wow. to be up at. <laughs> butt crack of dawn. the butt crack of dawn i like to be up when the when the birds are chirping no i so i'm a morning person but i am not a routine person mm -hmm. 
So I'm kind of like chaos incarnate because I love to be awake early, but it doesn't mean you know what I'm going to be doing early in the morning. Like I never do the same thing like in a row <laughs> pretty much. And it is something I am working on actively. I, I know I, I have habits, but I don't have routine is kind of what it is, is what mm. I pinpointed it down to be. So, you know, for the Monday to Friday, eight to four, this is painful for some of you, but I do need to be awake around 5.30 or 5.45 uh, just to get ready, give myself time to ease into the morning. My alarm is usually traumatizing. It's the first thing I hear some days. <laughs> I, I went through a phase in school where I, oh my God, do you remember uh, 303, the band? Yes. I had Starstruck as my alarm when I was in the fifth or sixth grade that's a good one actually from then on i stopped having songs wake i would have the radio wake me up from time because it's not the same thing you know and it's mm-hmm. kind of subtle now i have those like birds chirping that, mm-hmm. that's my alarm like those sun clocks but yeah i was gonna say whose alarm isn't traumatizing it doesn't matter even if it's the most enjoyable sound you know i will i will say apple phones have probably the most aggressive fear inducing aggressive alarms like sometimes i'm listening to what i accidentally such as my alarm center i'm like wow this like no wonder like my cortisol has spiked <laughs> like, it's like i'm getting ready to go into the trenches and it's yeah. <laughs> i'm in the suburbs <laughs> birds are chirping still yeah birds are chirping but i'm ready to fight like, i'm ready to fight yeah. i'm ready to put on my gear like that's how i feel some mornings um but yeah so i'm a morning person i love to be up early i love to just i love the quiet i think is what mm-hmm. it is because it's almost like once everybody else wakes up it gets so noisy and so busy in the world but when it's early in the morning it's just like you and the sun and your coffee or your tea you know the little the squirrel outside in the backyard eating its nuts yeah i do i do love the morning like i just love the peace and quiet that comes with being up early and i do naturally just i like going to bed at a decent hour not that i always do but yeah i don't have i don't have a morning routine i'm not even gonna lie i I cannot tell anybody like to their face that i have a morning routine because i don't (laughs) i don't think that's necessary like I mean, I, I, when I say to people, like, what's your routine before work? Like, yeah, what time do you wake up? What do you need to get done before hopping in your car or on the taking the train or bus or whatever mm-hmm. to get to work? I just like, you know, what do you do? Do you just are you that person who just rolls out of bed, gets what, like a like a protein bar or shake or whatever, and then goes? Or do you have to have like at least 30 minutes to yourself in the morning where you sit down, eat breakfast? Do you even eat breakfast? Like that, that kind of stuff. Those are the questions that intrigue me because Mm -hmm. I think it says a lot about a person, right? The things that, you know, some people don't value that time in the morning and some people they're like, no, I need to, this is the only me time I get. I guess for me, I get the me time in the afternoons. That's sort of why I'm like, in the morning it's get up go it's like go 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 get dressed get ready get to the go train like get into the go train get on the train like that is when like i'm like okay so i really i'm on my way to work and then i do have my day and then i get home and because i finish at four i have so many hours of the afternoon to just do whatever i want and because it's an adult job i don't have to do anything outside of those working hours for it yet i'm sure once i move up the ladder 
it will require more outside preparation and things like that. But as it is right now, I sign out and I get to go home. I take a nap on the train sometimes. Love it. So because of the nature of your job, it seems like you want to be making a difference in someone's life. Are you trying to be what someone once was for you? Are you trying to, you know, follow the footstep of a certain role model? Are there in certain influential people you're trying to to kind of mimic and, and follow along on, on their path? Yeah, what is what is that motivation behind the line of work that you do? It's a good question. I love this question. So I guess I feel I don't feel the need to make a difference or like do things to get recognition. It just sort of is who I am maybe from how I grew up in my parents or influences that I had in my life, but I just love to make improvements. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel, but I just love to look for efficiencies and better ways or more accessible ways for things to be done or for processes to be standardized, you know, be resourceful for others, give people the resources and the, and the, you know, non-judgmental space maybe that they have never had because I love people feeling safe around me and just being that person they can turn to like, no question is stupid. I'm not going to make you feel bad for what you ask me because I hate that. Like That's one of the things that I despise the most is people who make somebody feel bad or condescending or patronizing for somebody who has a very, like a question, right? Or a concern um, and just being able to make things easier to find even in my job enrolling in the benefits program finding creating sops so people know what the process is for something who they should be contacting like just making things more efficient (laughs) and better finding opportunities for people is something i love to do if i see a job posting i think somebody would be great for i will forward that to them if i can connect people for something i'll do it i don't know what it is someone's like oh like why'd you oh why'd you think of me i was like i don't know I just thought it'd be good for you. (laughs) And I really don't know where it comes from other than like, I just love people. (laughs) And that's my golden retriever energy coming through heavily. (laughs) Um, And I feel like it's definitely my, like, and I think I had such open and like my parents, like growing up, like they, they definitely were very influential to me in the sense that, you know, not not like, oh my God, I love my parents. They're perfect. Every like parents are people. They have their shortcomings. They have their flaws. They have their own burdens. And I recognize that. And I think sometimes as the older older sibling, the responsible one, I do carry a lot in a family. And from, you know, parents share things with you about one another or about the family. And sometimes you're a little bit too young to be hearing things or knowing about things. And you still have to, you know, carry that with you. But at the same time, they always provided me with opportunities to like explore my interests and it never made me feel bad for being interested in anything whether it was like oh horseback riding dancing like it was okay for me to quit things they never made me feel bad for quitting activities I wasn't really into because I know some parents will pressure their kids into doing things because like oh well I paid for this or oh I did this for you why are you quitting why are you giving up whereas like I never really experienced that that I can recall and I like to carry that forward for anybody really like it's okay to put down the violin it's okay to quit piano it's okay to stop a course halfway if you're 
checking out this coding thing and honestly it's not clicking you maybe changed what you want to do and it's no longer going to be of a benefit it's okay to stop and 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 pivot <laughs> in the words of business and just change change the direction like it's okay to do that because you learn something about yourself at the end of the day and you experienced it maybe you'll go back to it later on you know so yeah so i definitely say I don't think I'm trying to be some, I wouldn't say I'm trying to be something that someone wasn't for me or that, um, or someone was for you. Was for me. Like I'd say if anything, I just like to emanate the same support that I got and the same, like the same here and there. From yeah. From different people throughout my life, different instructors or teachers or bosses. And, and just, I find I, I get along with the people in positions of authority really well. <laughs> Some people fear them or they don't like, they get scared of teachers or principals. Whereas like, I don't know what it is, but I love older people and talking to them. And I have like befriended so many people who are like twice my age. I'd say too, like you learn from your parents and you learn from, you learn from all these adults and these people in influential people in your life because they have their pros and their cons. And you kind of can take from that what you want, you know, like, okay, like that's not a communication style that I'd like that I would you know, use with somebody else. Like, I'm going to avoid that. Or, oh, I really like the way they approach things. I'm going to try to practice that. What's the favorite, your favorite part of your job? My coworkers. I love my coworkers. They're, I just, it's such an interdisciplinary place for me to work that I get to talk to doctors and nurses and dietitians and just, and who they just are outside of their professional roles. Like, I love the people I work with. They're amazing and they're so funny. And they're just the reason I love to come into work. I, I enjoy my job, but I love seeing the people at work and getting to talk to them and all the uh the things we get up to in a day. <laughs> and what about the least enjoyable part of your job? So right now there's a lot of changes happening in the company and I find it's been difficult. <laughs> That's been my least favorite part has kind of been having to find answers and get answers and maybe not get as not having as much information from above and leadership it's been a bit it's been challenging it's been hard um in an indirect way um because it affects how i can do my job if things are coming down the pipeline and mm -hmm. all of a sudden i don't have answers to things that i'm being asked it doesn't feel good so i'd say it's my least the hardest part right now is is just change change happening like change mm -hmm. management but not having a lot of management happening with the change to close off here do you have any advice for anyone who's aspiring to be where you're at like in terms of either having that eight to four or like securing the bag or <laughs> working in policy in general like health health policy and any experiences that they should go through before definitely recommend being doing things for yourself that aren't just for your resume, always making time for your own interests and your own, you know, updating your playlists and washing your bed sheets. Because I know most of you listening right now have not washed your bed sheets in a little too long. <laughs> so do those little, little things that don't seem life changing, but they're for you. Things that are for you, always make time for you. And the biggest piece I would say is that although it might feel uncomfortable um you like you might not have all the answers right now 
And maybe you think you do, but at the end of the day, you don't. So as sure as you are of yourself and what you know and what you want to do, it's okay to ask for support and get a different, get a second opinion um, or ask for guidance. Like it's never something to be ashamed of. They'd never be ashamed of asking for help because I struggled with it for a long time when I was younger. And I think things would have been a lot easier for me had I reached out earlier, had I not been so afraid or ashamed. I'm not sure if it's one or the other, a bit of both to just have more help um, and reach out because it, it resulted in a lot of things getting better for me. And I think as well, that kind of ties into the way that the world is right now like the career this the landscape of careers has changed so much in the last 5 10 even 15 years from what it used to be so there's different cultures and countries with systems that you can learn from so always look beyond our borders always look outside of yourself and outside of what you see in your little world because there's so many other perspectives and solutions and even just you know, maybe you think you have the answer, you ask somebody else and it's like, oh, I didn't think of that for, for any aspect of life, whether it's for your mental health or for your, for your job or how to, how to fix a tire. Like it applies to everything is you mean how to okay. change a tire. <laughs> I don't know. You can fix tires. Can't you, you can like plug them. Yeah, you could. <laughs> you could. You're right. There you go. We just- I know. I've never heard of it as how to fix a tire. I think if I were to say that, it just shows how much I know about cars. <laughs> I was thinking of bikes, actually, too. So there oh, you go. We're thinking about different tires different things. Yeah, <laughs> entirely. Exactly. And that, again... What my emojis on my car mean, you know? <laughs> emojis. When you unlock a new badge on the dashboard. <laughs> on the dashboard, exactly. It's a new achievement. <laughs> okay, I'm not that clueless, but yeah, I don't yeah. know how to do any of those things. But yeah, like, definitely what? ask for help. Yeah, definitely. and that's hurt anyone like and i say this to anybody whether you know exactly what you want or you feel like you're just lost in a world of options and expectations like it applies to anybody you know like don't be afraid and sometimes even if you're not afraid afraid of asking for help like be proactive about it you know like ask for a second opinion ask you know collaborate with other people and people who aren't even in your field sometimes or in doing what you do you can get a totally different response to a problem from somebody would face it in a completely different way and i find that so fascinating thank you so much for all of these little gems and i think overall a different perspective on um volunteering especially for me like seeing it as something that indicates a gap or a lack a lapse of judgment made by the government or you know something that they something's missing and and filling it in with with volunteer volunteer work and the nuances in, in healthcare policy in the world that we have to to be cognizant of and knowing that you know we don't always have the solution thank you so much for sharing all of your your insight your experience <laughs> yeah and your uh, your uh, yum yum machine <laughs> Are you gonna use that from now on to be like husband? Fetch me water to the yum yum machine. (laughs) Fetch me water to the yum yum machine. Yes, thank you so much for having me and for facilitating these conversations. It's awesome. Thank you so much for tuning into Empowering XX. I really hope you enjoyed the second episode and took something valuable from my conversation with Andrea. 
If you want to reach out to Andrea, you can find her Instagram handle in the description of this episode. If you have any questions for me, or if you want to share your story or know someone who you think should be featured, you can reach out to me using the contact info that's in the description as well. But until next time, ta-ta for now. Thank you.